Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the image of God with Dr. Catherine McDowell, professor of Old Testament from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and the author of The Image of God in the Garden of Eden. Dr. McDowell, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a treat. All righty. So, first of all, could you review for us, before we even get into Scripture or the ancient Near East, could you review for us um, schools of thought about the image of God throughout church history? Um, Speaking in very broad brushstrokes, when you look at the history of interpretation of what does it mean to be made in God's image in Genesis 1, four primary categories kind of rise to the surface. Um, One being that humanity... Um, being made in God's image refers to a mental and or spiritual likeness, meaning that, uh, for example, humans have um, rational capacity, and that must be somehow related to being made in God's image. It's a view that disputes that there would be anything physical, but primarily there's some kind of the spiritual capacity that we have um, is, is a big part of what it means to be made in God's image. Uh, another view is a uh, quite distinct from that, and we see it in rabbinic theology, that it actually is something physical. And in rabbinic theology, there's a stream of thought that God has a body, and that's why humans have a body. Um, This may sound um, very surprising to to our audience, but uh, because it's not something that um, Christians typically think of, this kind of physical resemblance. But I I do find it interesting um, and sometimes ask myself, I haven't studied it in any depth yet, but um, this idea of, you know, Jesus had a physical body. And so, so do we look like we do? Be, is, is our physical being somehow a reflection of um, Christ's physical being? Anyway, for another time. But that's, that's an idea in rabbinic theology that, that God had a body. And so um, being made in the image and likeness of God it is reflected in our physical body. Um, There's also the idea that humanity um, function as God's counterparts. And this is something that Karl Barth was famous for. Um, And and he defines it in terms, uh, in relation to the Trinity. So um, that there is a, uh, as there is relationship within the Trinity, that being created in God's image and likeness, Uh, is primarily about relationship between God and humanity. And so being made in the image of God is primarily about a spiritual relationship. And we see that further developed in his uh, writings. But one that probably is most prominent among Old Testament scholars is the view that uh, humans are being made in God's image means that humanity is created as a royal representative of God on earth. And of course, this view arises right out of the context of Genesis 1. Humanity is said to, to, God commands them to rule and subdue um, and to procreate, be fruitful, multiply. And so um, this view is not something you typically find in the church. I don't hear it preached very often, but it's definitely a prevailing view among Old Testament scholars. And that derives primarily from the ancient Near Eastern context uh, of Genesis 1. All righty, so let's take a look at the um, ancient Near East. Um, Assyria, Babylonia, Mesopotamia, Egypt, what can we learn from their experience, writings, archaeology, etc.? Yeah, it's a, it's, um, 
again, not something that we typically consider if we're in a Bible study or um, hearing a sermon or preaching a sermon. But the historical context and the ancient context is vital to understanding the Old Testament. And so with this kind of as a a case study, um, we see the image and likeness language elsewhere in the what we call it the ancient Near East. We mean the wider world of the Bible, Israel's neighbors, Israel's cultural context, right, historical context. And we see this language being used. Um, one way it's used, of course, is to uh, to denote an idol, what we would call an idol, what the Bible calls an idol, what they would have called a statue or a god, actually. And so I do think that one of the things we, we um, glean from looking at the ancient Near Eastern context when it comes to interpreting Genesis 1 is that humanity is, when we say royal representative, is almost like God's statuette on earth okay this physical representative in some way of god's character of god's um capacity to rule like we have a capacity to rule because god's given us that and to subdue in the way that god would rule and subdue not to um not to damage the earth of course but to rule and subdue in the way that he rules and subdues so um so one aspect is this royal kingly aspect, but also it seems to indicate by using this image and likeness language that was quite common in the wider world of the Old Testament um, to indicate a statue, some kind of physical manifestation or represent- representation of, of the God, in this case of God himself. Uh, one of the other really interesting things that, that pops up, though, is when you look at image and likeness language, in several creation stories from the ancient world that it's used to designate um, the father-son relationship, parent-child. But I think in all the examples, it's except one, it's father-son. And then an Egyptian example, it's God and the God and humanity. But it does define, um, it says so-and-so was made in the image and likeness of his father. And we see that in, for example, what's often known as the Babylonian Genesis, the Enuma Elish, as it's called. And there um, it's talking about the birth of all these gods and they're, they're compared to their parent. And so one is made in the image and likeness of his father. And it's very similar terminology to what we get in Genesis one. Um, So it's important that we read Genesis one in that original historical context, because we need to ask ourselves, how would ancient Israel have heard this? When they heard it or read it for the first time, what what came to their mind when they heard image and likeness? And my guess is it was both sonship, so God defining the divine human relationship in terms of father-son, which, you know, sonship is a big, um, uh, carries a lot of theological freight in the Old Testament. And in terms of um, this royal representative kind of quality that humanity has. Could you give us uh, a little more detail about specific examples in the ancient Near East Mm -hmm. that would be uh, helpful for getting us a background to the Old Testament? Sure. So the Enema Elish being one of them, right? Um, There is um, an Egyptian text, the text of Merikare, and that one mentions humanity as um, the image and likeness of the God. Uh, And... It's interesting because there, 
the the word for image actually has um, it's clearly denoted in Egyptian that it's referring to a statue. Yeah, it's got a little mm. marker beside the word that indicates it's talking about a statue. So um, there, it's both, and it talks about father. I mean, fa- the the god having fathered them. So it's a combination of the sonship and the um, statue idea. Uh, we have another one from, it's called the, um, it's a hymn of an Assyrian uh, king named Tukulti Nanorta <laughs> and uh, the third. And it's a, a hymn that talks about his birth. And it says that he was cast through the channel of the womb of the gods. So it's employing that kind of metallurgy imagery. He's being cast and poured like a metal statue. But Enlil, who's this patron deity, um, is is his father in the in the in the poem? Enlil is named as his father, and it even says that this king Tukulti Ninurta is the image of Enlil. So he's both the physical statue representing Enlil, but a living being, of course, a king, a real human person, and he's um, the son of this god. And it's a poem. It's a hymn. It's not a historical narrative. But it's fascinating to me that that's another example where we have a combination of sonship or father-son, image and likeness language being used for that, but also clearly being used um, to talk about the king as a physical representation of the deity. All right. So that gives us a good background for diving into the Old Testament. Uh, So what can you tell us uh, in the Old Testament, especially, of course, in first couple chapters of Genesis, but... Um, go for it. Yeah. So, so what, what does the Bible have to say? So we've got looked at the ancient Near Eastern context a little bit, but what does the Bible have to say about image and likeness language? Well, interestingly, this pair of terms occurs one other place uh, in the Old Testament, and it's uh, together. And it's in Genesis 5, 1 through 3, where it talks about Adam um, fathering Seth. And it says that Seth was made in the image and likeness of Adam just as Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. And so again, there we have um, a witness from the Bible itself from just a few chapters after Genesis 1. It's clearly referring back to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, 27. And it is also combining image and likeness language with sonship. I mean, it basically gives us the biblical definition of image and likeness. It's father-son relationship. So the son okay. is made in the image and likeness of the father. Okay, and to be clear, are we to understand image and likeness as synonymous, or is there some variation there? Yeah, good question. Um, there's some debate about that, but I I do think that they're largely synonymous, and based on the fact that um, there are several other words in related Semitic languages like Akkadian for image and likeness that we see used in this way as well. Um, and there's one particular inscription on a statue um, from, that was discovered in Syria that dates, I believe it's about 9th century BC. And it actually has a bilingual inscription on the statue. And it's in Akkadian and Aramaic. And the, um, let make sure I get them straight. I believe the Aramaic has image and likeness, just like the, the cognate terms that we have in Genesis 1, Selim and Demut image and likeness. But the um, Akkadian translation of that uses image both times, uses the term zelim, zelim, mm. Akkadian, but zelim both times. So at least 
um, the the scribe in that case apparently saw them as synonymous. There is some debate in Genesis one, but I do think they're probably roughly synonymous. Okay, so you could you go for um, more examples in the Old Testament? Um, also, um, you talk in uh, Genesis 9 about the blood avenger and also the notion of uh, pr- the prohibition of graven images. Yes. So good. The, yeah, Genesis 9, uh, we don't have um, image and likeness there, but we do have image. And it's clearly referring back to Genesis 1. So it says that, this is the kind of the death penalty in the Old Testament that you can't, uh, if you take the life of someone, then you, you pay with your own life. And the reason given there is because humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. And interestingly, in, a, in some of our English Bibles, it's translated as um, that the, the reason is given at the end of that clause, but in Hebrew, it's at the beginning. It's in the, why can't, why do you get the death penalty for murder? Because in the image and likeness of God, God made humanity. Hmm. So it's actually written in Hebrew to emphasize that the reason that you don't kill someone is because they are made in the image and likeness of God. Um, and that emphasis is lost in some English Bibles when they flip it, flip the order. Um, but again, what's so interesting about this, if indeed the image language is kinship language, um, what does it mean? I mean, why would God say in Genesis 9, if you take the life of another person, then your, your life's going to be forfeit because they're made in God's image and likeness, meaning that this is God's child that someone has killed. And we have this very interesting concept in the Old Testament of the, um, a lot of people are familiar with it. We talk about the kinsman redeemer, like from the book of Ruth, Boaz turns out to be the kinsman redeemer. But um, the word is really just, it means to kind of to act as a kins act as a re- act as a kinsman, act a redeemer. And one of the roles of the kinsman redeemer is to avenge the life of your murdered family member. Mm. Um, and so it seems to be in Genesis nine. This seems to be another confirmation that image and likeness language is really about kinship. Um, is because God says, if you murder one of my family members, then you pay with your life. Like God is going to act as the divine kinsman or the kinsman redeemer and carry out that specific role of the uh, blood avenger, the family avenger. So it it does seem to support this idea that um, image and likeness language is really about primarily um, about kinship. And then the prohibition against graven images. Why is that significant? Yeah. Why, why is it um, that Israel's told very clearly you are not to make images I think there are probably several reasons, um, and probably the most popular one, m- most uh, common interpretation is that, um, you know, God simply can't be captured in anything that a human being could make, which is true. But I think it's also that he's the only one that is permitted to make images of himself, and he does mm. so in the form of humanity, right? Not that we're divine, we're not divine, we're not gods, um, but we are in some way representatives of God, as flawed as we are, representatives of God on earth. And so, um, you know, he's the only one who is what I would call the legitimate image maker. 
All right. And in uh, Leviticus 19 and other places, there's laws relating to justice. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the uh, notion of Israel being created to be a display people Mm -hmm. of God and doing acts of justice has everything to do with that in order that the nations are drawn to God. Yes. So the functional aspect of being made in God's image and likeness is well-developed in a lot of the um, secondary literature, like commentaries, things like that, this, um, the royal function of humanity. And so in Israel's context, what did it actually look like for them to carry out this kind of um, this role as God's representative? If we back up just a little bit, when, when, Israel, when God delivers Israel out of Egypt, remember what he says to Pharaoh, what he says to Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go right? They're identified as his God's people. But he even says um, with the plague on the death of the firstborn, you know, um, that he's going to take, because his firstborn, Israel, has been so badly abused, he's going to cause the death of the firstborn of of Egypt. Um, And so explicitly, the term for son, S-O-N, is used explicitly of Israel in the book of Exodus. And so a lot of folks will trace sonship back to Exodus, but I think it actually goes all the way back to Genesis 1. And Israel becomes kind of this subset of humanity whom God um, chooses uh, almost like a second Adam or a second Adam or a second humanity through whom he's going to achieve his redemptive ends, you know, because the first Adam and the first Eve failed so miserably And rather than destroy them, God um, continues his, he sets out a plan to restore the world. And through, through a descendant of Israel is, is, he's going to do this. But so Israel is explicitly his son. I mean, the term is used there for the whole nation of Israel. And they get this call in Exodus 19. God says, if you are going to, um, that you will be my special treasured possession if you will obey the, the, the covenant and uh, you will be to me as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So there we get this royal priestly language um, again, applied to Israel this time. But I think it's a kind of a revival of God's original creational intent for all of humanity, but it's now focused specifically on Israel through whom God will achieve his purposes to restore humanity to himself. Um, so, I digress. I'm getting off a little bit, but you asked me about, oh, about um, Leviticus. So what did it look like for Israel to live in their own context as faithful son, as a light to the nations, as Isaiah calls it, to live before the watching eyes of the nations in such a way that they will display the character of the father to those people who don't know him. And so Leviticus 19 captures this very well. Um, it, it talks about what it means to be holy, like God is holy. And when I was growing up, I always thought of holiness as something that was kind of unappealing. <laughs> it sounded, um, you couldn't have any fun. You had to sit and, I don't know, I just, I just had a very misguided perception of what holiness meant. But Leviticus 19 helps us see what, it, what, is, what does it look like for Israel to live a holy life and thus display the character of God. It meant um, things like when you're harvesting if you're, a, if you're someone who grows grapes or uh, you would harvest 
but leave plenty on the edges for those who are poor, for the widows, or for the foreigner in your midst. So it was a, and it, and it was a way to remind the landowner that God is actually the ultimate landowner, that your land is on loan from God. This is God's land. Um, so it would keep the landowner from becoming greedy and hard of heart. But it was also a way not only for the poor to um, provide for themselves, but also it gave them a way to tithe and to participate in worship. So it was a dignifying process for everyone involved. Um, and then, of course, using just weights and measures, right? Don't, um, don't cheat people who are buying wheat from you or grain. Use weights and measures that are accurate. Why? What does that have to do with being created in the image of God? Because it's a faithful, rep- truthful representation, right? If your weights are accurate, then you are being fair, right? You're not cheating someone. Um, and there's also, it talks about don't move the boundary stone. Well, there were stones that were laid out to indicate, you know, property lines. And by moving it to try to enlarge your territory, you were then stealing from someone, right? Stealing part of their land. And so if you're to, to embody what it meant to live as one created in God's image would, would again, justice, fairness, truthfulness are all aspects of that. The opposite being, you know, deceit and wickedness and those kind of things. So it has extremely practical implications, both for Israel and for us, but um, yeah. I don't know what could be more practical, <laughs> to be honest. All right. And going back to uh, Genesis, uh, we see the whole notion of being made in the image and likeness of God right in the same context of be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion. How would you tie an image of God with those three uh, mandates? Yeah, good. Um, I think they are the implications of okay, So one who's made in the image of God, that is, uh, in quotes, kind of sons, children, and of course, children of God, that's a big theme in the New Testament. But um, I would say that this is the function, the, the royal function of those made in God's image of humanity. And so um, this plays itself out in the way that, that God's people should be uh, ruling and subduing in ways that imitate God's that ways that display God's character. So again, justice, um, not greed, right? Fairness, um, and things like, um, I mean, being fruitful and multiplying, God is, is providing humanity with a way to create, um, almost in a sense, images of their own, right? I mean, they're God's part of God's family, but in, in a way it's, it's imitating God, right? To be fruitful, to be creative, to be productive in a way that blesses the nations or the way that blesses humanity. And so um, God's not giving them permission. We say subdue in modern English that sometimes has a negative connotation, but it certainly didn't in biblical Hebrew and not in Genesis one. It's about, ruling in a way that really cares for, promotes, causes God's creation and his and people to thrive. So again, the, the particular applications are kind of innumerable. And how would you tie in uh, theophanies to the image of God? Theophanies in terms of, 
Yeah, there are, um, you know, there are places where God appears not in human form, right? In the Old Testament, uh, he appears as cloud or in the cloud or um, as a as a pillar uh, in fire, like at the burning bush, of course, through the Red Sea. Um, but there are places, interestingly enough, where he appears and the prophets, for example, like Ezekiel, describe it as like a man, right? Like a human. <laughs> He's seated on a throne. Um, or they describe God in anthropomorphic terms. And again, you know, some folks just conclude that this is simply a way to just, either it's a poetic way or kind of a metaphorical way to describe God. Um, they think there's no way God could have that kind of physicality. And maybe they're right. Um, but I do wonder that, again, if, if we kind of look at it from the other side, why do we look the way we do? You know, why were we created um, you know, our heads up here, we have two arms, we have two legs. Like, is there anything that we are patterned after? Is there any um, particular manifestation of God whom we are patterned after physically? And again, this is like, this is all kind of just surmising uh, or just wondering really about this. But of course, you know, Jesus was manifest as a human, right? And who looked like one of us. And so, um you know, it does, to me, it does beg the question, are we, is that the pattern? You know, the, this, this anthropomorphic form of God, um, is that a pattern after which we were created? Because a lot of, most people tend to look at it as God took on human form because we're humans and he's kind of condescending to us. Um, but it, yeah, it just makes me wonder, because someone asked me the question once and I thought, oh, I really should think about that. So I don't have a conclusion, but I think it's a fascinating question. Um, are we patterned after uh, an anthropomorphic manifestation of God himself? I don't know. <laughs> All righty. Well, so let's um, dive into the New Testament. We've got Paul using the language of image of God in Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and then uh, James. Yes. So um, what would you tell us about the image of God in the New Testament? Yeah, especially so, as it relates to Jesus. Yeah. Himself. Okay. So I think here the sonship aspect really comes to the fore because Jesus himself is declared to be not, not like the image. See, in Genesis 1, humans are created in the likeness and according, or in the image and according to the likeness. But with Jesus, there are no prepositions when he's described. He's described, he is the image, he is the likeness. In other words, he is the son, right? So, I think it, I think the sonship comes to the fore there because it, again, explicitly Jesus is described as the son of God in the New Testament, but also his, um, that he's a manifestation of God himself. So he's not just a representative, but he actually manifests God in some like, amazing, mind blowing way. He manifests, he, he exhibits the character of God. Um, he, the wisdom of God. Uh, so he is like the ultimate, like he's defined as the second Adam. He's the, the firstborn of the new creation. Like he is the, um, the, like the first of new humanity. Right. And so I do think it's not just sonship, but I think sonship is, is a key part of what it means that Jesus was the image and likeness of God. He is God's son. 
but he is this manifestation of God who exhibits perfectly God's holiness, God's character, God's wisdom, and in his behavior, in his treatment, in his word, treatment of other people, in his words, he fully and perfectly displays um, the identity of God, the character of God. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable that he's not just made in God's image, he actually is the image. We started with historical views on the image of God in the church and how um, they, according to modern, most scholars now, I guess since for some time now, quite a few decades, um, see those as insufficient. Yet, um, as you mentioned, many pastors, many people in the church still hold on to views which are less than biblical. They're not historically grounded. Mm -hmm. So is that a problem or is that just inconsequential because it seems like that could have uh, harmful effects on the, the church because of that. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, I, um, you're right that this kind of, at least the Royal representative view has been around for a long time. I mean, it goes at least back to the early 1900s um, with some European scholars. And, and, and that came about because of the rediscovery of the ancient Near Eastern world. Right. So for centuries, church, I mean, uh, church uh, scholars and church folk, they didn't have access to that information. Uh, but now we do. And, and I, I think, I mean, I do ask, myself, why has this not made its way into the church? Because it's, it's in the major commentaries. Um, and my, I mean, I don't know if this is the case, but you know, I, I just have to pose the question, how, how much are we studying when we prepare, if we're teaching a Bible study or a sermon or preaching a sermon, teaching a class, how much preparation are we actually doing? Because I don't think the information is hidden. Um, but I do think that uh, it, it the, way I, the way I tend to compare it is, you know, there's so much richness. If you just pay attention to the context, the original context, there's so much richness there that they, that if you're the teacher or the preacher, you're denying people. Or, again, it's not just on the preacher and teacher. We can study for ourselves, too. That if you're not uh, at least consulting a good commentary or a good study Bible, you know, there are some study Bibles out now that really focus on historical context. There's the NIV has one and the ESV has one, and they're both very good. And so you don't have to go digging in all these different books. They'll provide it for you right in the notes. But but it does, um, it kind of, I don't, it just grieves me that people aren't getting what is is there on offer you know that they're kind of getting a bag of potato chips when what's really being offered is a full course delicious nutritious meal <laughs> and um so i think that's where the harm comes people get a superficial and often erroneous understanding because if you just ask people i've done this before taking informal polls of well, what do you think it means to be made in god's image and usually people talk about our creative abilities um and some people mention relationship. And I think, you know, those are true, but it's just scratching the surface. And in the context and lay context where I've been able to talk about um, image of God in more depth, I mean, people are amazed. And it really is something, it's not just an intellectual kind of adventure. It's really transformative. It changes how we relate to each other and how we perceive other people. Um, it has for me. And, and so I, um, I, I do think it's extremely unfortunate that and, and, and damaging in the, in the words used. I think it is damaging because um, we're not giving people what's actually there if we're the ones.
who's doing the teaching. Or if we're studying it for ourselves, we're not getting all it has to offer. Instead, we're often kind of importing our own understanding. And that doesn't get us very far, unfortunately. Yeah, it seems to me that we often miss out on our understanding of what we are called to be, what is our role in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And our orientation is more towards, okay, what can God do for me in my life? Right. Yeah. And we, we get things backwards. So. Yeah. At any rate, um, you have mentioned something, the effect of that you've spent more time on royal sonship than the notion of us as living statuettes. And that's because there's less scholarship on the royal sonship. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, when I did the research, there were a few people who mentioned it here and there. But overall, um, in the secondary literature, what, what scholars really focus on is this royal representative view. And it was so well known and well treated in scholarship that I thought, okay, I don't need to say a whole lot about it. Um, and, and why is it that the um, sonship piece was, there was so little attention given to it? I don't know how to, why so little attention um, was given to that and why consistently the secondary literature traces sonship back to Exodus. It's very prominent in Exodus, and it's very explicit there that Israel, the nation of Israel, was kind of defined as God's son. But again, I do think it goes all the way back to Genesis. So as to why it wasn't treated, I I don't know. Perhaps it couldn't be because we didn't have the ancient Eastern information because we did have it at that point. So, But it's been neglected, uh, and it's it's primarily... um, image and likeness has primarily been discussed in terms of function, but I, I was at a conference once on image and likeness in Genesis and someone asked a question during the Q and a, and he said he had a niece who was severely handicapped to the point where she couldn't speak. Um, there's no way she could function as a Royal representative. She can't rule. She can't subdue. And he said to the speakers, is she still made in God's image? And they were backpedaling pretty quickly because they had mm. defined it only in terms of function. And that's why I think the, the sonship piece is so important because it's defining our identity, our, like defining us ontologically, right? Like, who are we? Who am I? Who are we? We were created for a relationship with our Heavenly Father, first and foremost. I mean, that's how the Bible begins, defining and with creation and defining this divine human relationship in terms of kinship. And so I do think that's of primary importance. And I, I wanted to say to that man, you know, she absolutely is made in God's image simply by the fact that God created her because it's not ideally. Yes. And generally speaking, yes, human beings are to rule and subdue, but for those who physically or mentally cannot do that, they are still made in God's image, even though they can't function as that perhaps. And uh, back to the ancient Near East, uh, though there may have been some exceptions, it sounds like um, for most of them, the notion was was that the king was made in the image of God, whereas in Genesis, the stress is on all of humanity. So uh, maybe the exception would be Egyptian texts you mentioned, where humanity was made in the image of God. But what's um, why is that crucial to see all humanity as opposed to just the king? Yeah, that's a great question. It is It is the case that this kind of description was typically, when, when we find it in the ancient Eastern records, especially Akkadian, Assyrian, Babylonian records, 
that this was a relationship reserved for the king. Um, but the fact that Genesis, Genesis um, democratizes it to all of humanity doesn't diminish it. Instead, it actually raises all of humanity to this level of royalty and of royal sonship uh, in relation to the you know, God, the creator king. And so it really imbues every human being with incredible worth and dignity. They are being defined as part of God's family. Yeah. So it wasn't just reserved for the king in ancient Israel. It was all of, and not, and it wasn't just for ancient Israel either. It was all of humanity. Uh, It's defined this way. Yeah, I guess it's it says a lot about how we do things politically, whether in the wider world and especially in the church. For sure, yeah. So I heard you say something before about how we respond to suffering has everything to do with the image of God. Yes, where did I say that? <laughs> uh, Somewhere, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, I, I do think that the way we respond to suffering is an opportunity to bear out what a great opportunity to bear out what it means to be made in God's image. Um, and it's easy to become bitter. And, um, but I, you know, I do think that in terms of an opportunity to, to bear, whether it's you suffering or someone else, um, I mean, it's, it's obvious if someone else is suffering that you are, you know, family or friends, there, there are ways to care for that person that demonstrate to them the care of you know, God's care. Um, but in terms of if, if you are the one suffering, like how do I bear out the image of God? I mean, it, it's a great opportunity for others to see um, how, by how, through how you respond to suffering, what it means to be creating God's image. What do I mean by that? So um, I knew someone who had been diagnosed with breast cancer and was um, just suffering terribly from that and from the treatment. And she began to um, keep a journal that she shared with certain people uh, through her, and her responses to her suffering. She wasn't um, angry with God. She wasn't questioning why me, but it really was a, a, a means by which or through which she came to know Christ more dearly and more closely and so I would hope, I mean, you know, I, I don't mean that to sound insensitive to anyone. I mean, it, there have been times probably where most of us have asked why me or um, been angry with God for something that happened. And the Psalms are full of people expressing those kinds of emotions to God. And I think that's certainly okay. Um, but I was so struck by her particular responses because, and to witness, so so I got to witness her, her um, drawing closer to God through her suffering. And it was the, the deepening of this parent-child, father, heavenly father, spiritual daughter relationship. Um, so that's just one of the ways, you know. But as we talked about before, uh, when we were talking about Leviticus 19, caring for people, promoting justice, uh, fairness, equity, um, you know, they're just innumerable ways that we can uh, live this out every day. There really are innumerable applications. Um, 
So it's interesting to me to see how um, the notion of being created in the image of God um, gives people cause or reason to value human life, whether it's in discussions about war, slavery, genocide, or someone who is suicidal or involved in you know some sort of abusive you know, drug addiction or something. Um, what could you say about that? How that how that gets to be used? And I'm thinking of the greater culture, and not just the church. Yeah. Um, I I do think if we have a deeper grasp of what Genesis one is talking about, what it actually means to be created in God's image, the dignity that that gives us, the worth that 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 God gives us. It's not you know I'm not giving you that God declares. Um, that's transformative if we really grab hold of that. And I do think, I remember talking years and years ago with a fellow student when I was a graduate student who was studying counseling, I said, I think that this will have bearing on your counseling practice in the future. That if people can come to really understand um, what it means that God defines us as his family members and as his beloved children, I mean, again, you know, a lot of people's uh, family relationships are very dysfunctional and perhaps, you know, in some context abusive. And so the metaphor of family can be a tough one for some folks. But, um, you know, we can look at scripture and see what kind of father uh, God is in the Old Testament, um, as well as uh, in the new through Christ. And so I, I do think, again, practical and transformative implications if we can grab hold of, of what this actually means and how it how it should shape our understanding and view of ourselves. I, I really can't think of anything more powerful in terms of giving us kind of a reality check on who we are and who we're not. Maybe Job. <laughs> also, Job gives us a good, at the end, you know, Job realizes I'm small and God, I'm not God and you are God and I'm going to trust you despite my painful circumstances. Um, but it, it's, a uh, it is, again, I just can't think of anything more significant and more personally transforming, um, in terms of understanding our identity, our purpose, than knowing what it means to be created in God's image, how God designed us to be in relationship with them. Along those same lines, people often use the phrase something like, I believe life is sacred. But um, to my knowledge, I don't know any references in the Bible where you'd have that kind of language. But I'm, it sounds like they're just saying the same thing, finding two different ways of saying the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the penalties for, for murder, you know, they don't say in those terms, life is sacred, but they do. Um, that's the implication, right? That life is sacred, you're not to take someone else's life. All right. And finally, uh, you talked about wanting to uh, write more on this topic. What um, do you want to dive into? What more research? What areas are you looking at covering? Yeah, well, I'd really like to take the the, the book is, um, you know, it was, a dis- it was my dissertation. So it's not that easily accessible to a lot of folks. So um, I'd really like to do something that is going to be more appealing and, and make these ideas much more accessible to, um, you know, to lay folks so that, so that they have access to this kind of information if they want it. 
It's not just something for scholars. So that's uh, something I want to be working on in the near future. And particular areas that you haven't thoroughly researched yet, what would those be within that writing project? Yeah, I, I would like to do a little more on how the church has understood these terms in Genesis 1. So a little delve a little more into the background um, come, and just look at a, a, many more examples. Um, I've only done that in kind of broad strokes so far. Um, yeah, and I, I really do want to want to write on the practical implications of all of this as well. Now, why does this matter to me? Why should this matter to me? You know, kind of thing. All right. Excellent. Good stuff. All righty. Well, we've been with uh, Dr. Catherine McDowell, professor of Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. We've been looking at the image of God. So, Dr. McDowell, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. All right. Peace to everyone.